this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello. I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. You're listening to iFanboys Talksplode with Tom King. Hey, it's Josh Flanagan with iFanboy.com. Thanks to the patrons. Uh, it's a Talksplode episode, which is our creator interview podcast. This week, month, day, whichever it is, uh, I spoke with Tom King uh, about his maxi series, uh, Strange Adventures, Rorschach, and even a little bit of the Supergirl book. Uh, and, and other career stuff. You know what? This is a conversation between a couple of people who forget sometimes that they're doing a comic book podcast. That's that's what I think is happening here. Uh, but I had a heck of a good time, and I hope you do too. So the last time we were on here was June of 2019. <laughs> and what at, what the hell was June of 2019? That that does not ring a bell. So when I look at it on the calendar, I think, well, that time before. <laughs> I thought that wasn't that long ago. And then I think of everything that's happened between now and then. And it's been a really, it's, that's a, that's, I think that's about 40 years since then. <laughs> Reality has, has utterly changed since it's, it, well, this is, this is the second time we've had this in our lifetimes, right? Like nine 11 was yes. like this. Yeah, no, was... that's, I compare, I, I think that way a lot. And I also, I often frequently think that like, oh, the moment that I became an adult was basically nine 11. And then yep. at the end of sort of that early part of my adulthood was a pandemic. And I was like, I think we kind of got a raw deal. <laughs> you and I are about the exact same age. Yeah, I think you like yeah. a few months on me, or I have a few months on you. Yeah, I I told I divide my life into pre nine eleven because I met my wife just around that exact time mm-hmm. too. So yeah, there was like the pre nine eleven me that went to college and high school and was that that idiot, and then yeah, the post nine eleven me was the I guess the semi. Well, now it'll be, I guess now our old age begins with the pandemic. I don't know what fucking middle age. We're middle age now. We're middle age now. But That's who knows what's gonna come next? The, the... Well, Porsche, that's what comes next, right? That's what my parents always taught me. <laughs> from L.A. <laughs> I, I remember my divorced father getting the ponytail and the sports car. Wow. <laughs> I, was, I was like, what is this cliche driving up to my house to pick me up? <laughs> you didn't think that that you, so, so you're a kid and you didn't think, wow, that car is cool. You realized that he was a divorced cliche and then you became a writer. Yes, I was born an old man. I somehow already knew. I don't know. Maybe I'd watch enough Johnny Carson jokes or something. I don't know what the hell it was. But yeah, I'd, I, 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 and he would, we would do stuff. He, you know, he was looking for his soul and all that in, in, in Los Angeles in the early 90s, late 80s. So oh. like we would, we would go to, um, you know, like various cults from cult to cult. <laughs> and, he, and he would take us. And sometimes it would be sort of a Buddhist-based cult and sometimes like a, you know, like that Nexium kind of base cult. And we would just go like, as he sort of tried to find like the thing that worked for him to advance his have you, whatever spirituality. So have you ever been to an ashram? Uh, I don't know what an ashram is, but that sounds like the kind of thing that goes along with what you were talking about. 
No, my most distinct memory was um, was something where you know you got a um, you sat in front of a, a this is all white people you sat in front of a Buddhist idol. <laughs> well um, off white people. Yeah, yeah. This was yeah. Well, well off white. Uh, they're very like you know. There's like science, like people who weren't who either left Scientology or about to go there, like right. that sort of middle ground. Uh, and, and you repeated the same phrase over and over again. And the more time you repeated the phrase, the luckier life was supposed to be. Wow. And uh, and I remember. <laughs> and, and 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 then people would sort of get up there and testify and be like, I had an audition and I got the part because I said it forty thousand times. And yeah. <laughs> and, and you're about how old here? Eight, nine, something like that. Okay, you have kids. Can you imagine, no. for one second, your children, certainly not mine, sitting through any of that bullshit? My, my kids attend a, a nice Quaker school. Uh, we're, we're not a, a religious family, but it was just a school where I thought they could make friends. Sure. Um, and they teach, you know, nice stuff about peace and understanding and stuff, and it's diverse. Uh, but because it's a Quaker school, once a week they have to sit for half an hour in silence and mm-hmm. just stare at the wall. And my, it drives my children insane. That's got to be all of them. <laughs> yeah, they just can't. And we go through like, like, oh, what are we going to think? I was like, I was like, make a comic book in your mind. Just like, you know, like, like, like uh, they're just supposed to sit there and let God fill their heads. And I just, I'm, and they'll throw, yeah, my children, yeah. No, it would be impossible. I cannot accept this family sitting in a chair for f- five hours watching people pray to it. That's why they, I can't stand they, incense to this day. <laughs> it's just an awful smell. It just, it just flashbacks to that. Did you do the phrase, the like, no more talking, no more fun? Something Quaker has begun. That's what I remember. Maybe that's just I, no, like maybe that's an anti-Quaker thing somebody said, and I learned it. And now I've. I don't think what, you can what, offend Quakers. What they do is, you know, it's supposed to be you. You sit there, and sort of the voice of God speaks through you, and you mm-hmm. stand up. It's very, actually, it's very, it's, it's a nice way to worship. But what happens with a bunch of kids is the voice of God will speak through one of them, and they'll be like, "I hope you have a nice day." And then every other single kid hears that same voice of God. Mm-hmm. Because kids just repeat the next thing that came before them. So it'll go around and around in a circle where like 50 kids will branch up and say, I hope you have a nice day. And then the, eventually the teachers will stop them and be like, no, that's not what God is saying. Just be quiet. <laughs> angry, angry, angry Quaker teachers. <laughs> which I'm sure is hilarious in person, but on a Zoom call, it takes another level of absurdity for wow. the year we were doing that. <laughs> I hadn't even put that together. This has been the most unique start to one of these comic book interviews <laughs> I've ever done. And I'm not, and I'm here for it. This is, this is not a complaint. I try. That's what I'm going for. So, how has comic book life changed for you during this pandemic? Uh, I mean, cons went away. That was probably the big thing. Like, you, you, I don't see my friends, or I don't, you know, you do yeah. like, you know, five to ten to... You know, on the, my height, I was probably doing 13. That's a lot. And, you know, once, once or twice a month almost during the con season between whatever. So that, 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 that totally went away. Um, but the way it really affected me was it was the thing I clung to, to for my own sanity in terms of productivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because every week was the same. I mean, we all remember right. this. It all remembers for the rest of our lives. Uh, and so just psychologically it always felt good to me to end the week by turning in something Mm -hmm. to be like, okay, maybe this, maybe nothing changed in the whole week, but I wrote a script. And because of that, I became incredibly productive. And and because DC also paused their comics for five months, uh, I just got super far ahead in everything. 
and I've and it changed the way I write comics. You know, the way I write comics now is complete series because I'm so. I mean, I'm the guy who used to be on Batman, which was double ship, where we'd have to write issue two and then issue seven and then issue twenty two and then issue fifty four and then issue one. You know, like now I just write one through twelve while my series is this novel um, because of COVID because I got so far ahead. So it became very productive to me. Like, yeah. Uh, was there was there a moment in the beginning like you probably had things in place that you were working on but was there concern uh i mean there must have been in sort of like where things were going to go or did you have a pretty good idea about what the plan was you know sort of they were going to ramp down and then come back up it was so so i talked to jim lee in the very beginning and jim's an incredibly intelligent guy uh you know and probably the, the smartest guy i've ever met in comics and he was, you know, he was very logical about it. But we, we were talking, he's like, and we were both saying, like, the good thing about comics is it doesn't require socialization. Like, we're not like movies and TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, even novels don't really require it, but there's, like, book tours and stuff. Like, it just, just takes four uh, people. Uh, you know, you just need, you need a letter, you need a colorist, you need a writer, you need an artist. They don't have to be anywhere near each other and you can produce a comic. The only, like, social interaction is literally, like, dudes taking comics off a truck and giving it to other people mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> so we're like as long as that those people are okay it's fine and then like two weeks later it was those people fell apart right yeah. like diamond's like oh our, our truck drivers can't deliver and jim to his great credit I, I i think he was genuinely lying through his teeth i haven't heard this directly from him but i've heard it from people who know him uh he he called us and he was like nope this is such an opportunity just get ahead keep going you know marvel shut a lot of people down dc mm-hmm. was like just keep going, keep writing, keep drawing, get as much on the books as we can and use this as, as, as an opportunity. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I totally believed him at the time. And that's probably one of the, of the other reasons I got productive. The, 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 the very beginning of the pandemic, I was like, well, I'm vouchered for this many issues. I better keep turning them in before TZ Comics goes under completely. <laughs> and, uh, but, but because it, I mean, Jim was totally right. That actually turned out to be good. And, and, it soon became apparent, not immediately, but it soon became apparent that we were all stuck at home and we were all addicted to Amazon. And book sales started to skyrocket, and that sort of carried us through this through the whole pandemic in terms of sales and not almost almost all of us not being fired. Was that people just started buying books to read at home? Do you think that you um, you know, in terms of coming up with stuff that you're going to work on, you know, you're not out in the world anymore in the same way and you're not seeing as much stuff and so the sort of scope of I don't want to say influence but just sort of the input that you get coming in all the time changes did you did you notice that or did you have you know did it feel like you were as productive as ever in that way or did it change does that question make sense yeah no and it's such a good question Um, uh, I I think I mean comics are um to be, or to be, I guess probably be a writer any medium. It's, it's like a two-step process. There are two things you constantly need in front of you. Mm-hmm. Number one is just the skill to do it. Like you just have to know like like the blue-collar parts of the job, like where to put a comma, where to put a panel break, all the sort of stuff you can be taught. And like the other half is like the inspiration. You have to be like obsessed with something, you know? Mm-hmm. And you can have one or the other, and if you have one without the other, it doesn't work. And uh, vice versa. And like what you're talking about is like, if you're stuck at home doing nothing, where's your goddamn inspiration? What are you going to become obsessed with? And you just become obsessed with pop culture. So then you're just a pop culture person commenting on pop culture, which just fucking is mental masturbation. So <laughs> and there's a lot of it out there. 
<laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, and, and yeah, that was a, that was a problem in the pandemic. It's a problem for any writer. Cause we don't leave our houses that much as it is. Um, so yeah, I just had to make sure I got obsessed with sort of the right stuff and made sure to sort of mind that. And there was an added problem to that, which, uh, and nine 11 had similar to this, but not, not as much, I think, but like, I have no desire to ever write anything about the pandemic. I have no desire to watch anything about the pandemic. I don't. Do you watch Billions? Do you watch that show Billions? No, no. But I, I know exactly what you're talking about. But go, go on. I, I also have an example. I believe. Yeah, they did a recent. They did. They, they did a recent where they tried to sort of incorporate. They're like, okay, we take place in the real world. In the real world, a pandemic happened. So halfway through the season, they took off, and when they came back, like there was a pandemic, and everyone's wearing masks now. And and I was just watching the show, and I was like, I don't want to see any of it. It took it's me a, right out. It's a massive mistake. Like you yeah. don't, you don't need to reflect that part of our world because we all live in that world already, and and you have nothing to say about it because you're in the middle of it and you have no perspective. I, I have a very, I have very strong feelings on it. We were watching there's the morning show on Apple TV, and they come back for the second season, and they're like, it's at the beginning part, it's like December, and they're like, well, we're starting to see reports out of China. It's like I don't do this story. Yeah. I don't need you to do this story <laughs> at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, I feel the same. I mean, it's and we're not alone in this. Like, I have a history. My um, college roommate is a professor of history at the University of Richmond, a history, American history professor. And I was like, at the very beginning, of this we talked about the plague of, you know, 1918, and and he's like, the amazing thing about that plague is there's so much literature about the war that took place at the same time, but there's almost nothing about that plague. Like people just didn't want it. They didn't write books about it. They didn't write plays about it. It kind of appears here and there on the edge of things, but it's just, it, it yeah. never entered popular culture. And we're being like, oh, that's weird. Now I totally understand. I was like, I just don't want to fucking talk about it. I yeah. have no desire to, 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 to reflect this in any way. Well, what's interesting though, too, is that, you know, I, 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 I know history fairly well. And then as a thing that kind of snuck up on me at one point, because it kind of doesn't exist. And it's this yeah. huge end bookmark to world war one, but it's not even part of the story most of the time. Now, at the same time that I don't really feel like watching anything about the pandemic now, you know, other than like news I need to know. Um, if, and I've watched a couple of documentaries and read some books and stuff about the pandemic then. That is yeah. fascinating. That's true. Yeah, it's nice to look back on it. I don't want to look towards my well, own life. The only, the only, I guess, the, the, I don't know if it's nice, but the constant is you're like, oh, this is exactly the same. We've learned nothing. Everybody's acting the exact same way they did then, you know, and they just got lucky it went away. <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> it's very scary. <clears throat> so, anyway. yeah, I mean, that, that's problematic. Like, I, 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 for, as far as I know, DC, I mean, eventually, I mean, we also that stupid Twitter feed about when the last time your kids had a normal school year, mm -hmm. where it's like, my kid, I have a seven-year-old, and he's kindergarten, first grade, he's now in second grade. He's never had a normal school year. Uh, and that, that should be reflected in our culture, but I have no desire to put that in a comic at all. I, should, I have no desire to put DC Comics through this, to have scenes of people with – I mean, artists would probably love it. They don't have to have a face. But I, I, I think that comics are like the – mainstream comics are the last place that that needs to be. Right. I mean, not for nothing is that also, you know, if you look at the audience, the people who are reading comics right now, like they, they know they're living it. It's fine. Like, I, I don't I don't feel like we're in a point where we need art to make conclusions about it for us that we didn't realize we're not there. Like, we just don't understand it yet. But no, that's that's terrible. No, that shouldn't no. be. <laughs> so, yeah, you have to talk about it through 
I mean, that's what makes superhero comics good. It's like you can talk about this shit through metaphors and right. through like that's why you, you read Jim Starlin shit or, or uh, you know his Warlock stuff, which is all about drugs in Vietnam. But mm-hmm. drugs in Vietnam aren't mentioned at all in it. Mm-hmm. It's just that that was just like on his mind and in his heart when he wrote about going cosmic. That's what came out. That's what it has to be. Well, you know what's interesting to me is that the thing about the kids where you say, oh, the kid hasn't, hasn't had a normal year of school because of this or that or whatever. And, and what I thought is, well, yeah, but these are, these are actual formative experiences. <laughs> you know, like when we talk about like our grandparents who grew up during the depression or whatever and how that sucked at the time, but afterwards it, le- it stuck with them and in some ways that were beneficial in some ways that weren't or whatever. And what I thought was a lot of times it's like, well, good, my kids have to go through something difficult. Like they shouldn't. I like that positivity. All right. I mean, it's kind of tr- like nothing is difficult for them. Like we live in the easiest time it's ever been to live. You know, if you're a middle class kid in America, like it's it's not hard for them. And there's there's challenges and there's problems and there's depression and there's all all sorts of things like that. But like really existential dread. You know, like you know, again, we really I, I'm t- our age is just perfect. Like to grow up with nuclear existential dread as a child. Think you got past it. 9-11 happens. Think you got past that. It's like just bing, bing, bing. We didn't get wars in the same way, but we got, you know. I remember some wars. I feel like I saw some. Yeah, but it wasn't, it wasn't like World War II where like every single person in World War I where every single person knew people who went and did the whole thing and the entire society got behind it. And I, I know who I'm saying this to, but for most people, they didn't want to have to, they didn't want, they didn't have to deal with it if they didn't want to. You know, like. there was yeah. not an us, you know. I mean, every every generation can complain, but like, yeah, I feel like we hit high school just when Columbine happened, so things weren't fun anymore. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we graduate from college just as the tech boom burst, <laughs> and then we <laughs> <laughs> and then we're like, okay, things are gonna get better now. And nine eleven happens, and we have kids in the pandemic. And we're like, what the fuck? Is yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. you know, it's not the Irish potato famine. Good point. Good point. It's not. It's not the Irish potato famine. I, I really like, it. and especially as through this whole thing, you know, I, I the whole time I kept going. I feel pretty lucky. Like it sucks, but you know, I already work from home. I'm already, you know, like I don't really need to go see a bunch of people. I'm fine with it. It's. It's just. This has nothing to do with comics, but here we are. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, that was my perspective, though, like the whole thing. Like there were times where it got I'd be a real bummer, but I just thought, Jesus, I'm like one of the I'm so lucky. And I really thought that and I'm not a positive person. So that's that. But it was so clear, like, you know, I'm not having to drive a truck and go into places and do things and, and work and, you know, but my kids, that's the part where they felt it. My, my younger kid, like he wanted to be in school. My older kid didn't give a shit. He's like, this is the best year ever. My and my first one was like. Same with my, my older and younger. Same. Same. Exactly. Same. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But every, every once in a while, like, my kid lost his tooth recently, his two front teeth. So he's got one of those mm-hmm. classic seven-year-old no, to, no teeth smiles. And I was like, and he was so excited about it. You'd think he'd turn mm-hmm. into a superhero. He's like, I changed. And I was like, are you going to show your friends at school? He's like, oh, I can't because I wear a mask. <laughs> so I was like, oh, that's, what a depressing little thought. Wow, yeah, you're not wrong. Well. So anyway, I think this stuff will probably work its way into your work is what I'm getting at. But not directly. I will not be talking about no. that issue. No. No one will no there won't be no contagions in my work. Okay well, then. That that does bring me to something I was thinking about. I think that what I'm gonna do is I wanna talk about um 
Strange Adventures, and then I want to talk about Rorschach and whatever, and I feel like some of my discussion points will be the same thing, but I don't want to do them concurrently. So, here we go. Strange Adventures um, just wrapped up. I... Just before we got on here, I reread or at least thoroughly combed through the last five or six of them so I could get an idea uh, of sort of where it was going from the other side. And I mean, I guess my main thought about it was, where did you start? Like, what was the germ of that? And, and you know, how did that compare to where, the, where you ended up? Because, you know, reading it in issues a month apart or whatever it is, I think there's a lot of room for things to be missed because there's a lot of details, there's a lot of things going on around, and you've got to build this. And so where do you start? Like, like where, what was your first thought about this? Where does this come from? I mean, both, it's funny, it's funny we start with the pandemic because both those books are sort of pre-pandemic yeah. books in my head. They were both written, they're very much, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't want to get political at all because that's the boring waste of a podcast, but they're very much Trump books. They're very much mm-hmm. like, like, when we, th- the world seemed very insane in 2019, 2000, even before the pandemic. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting because th- as the pandemic starts, comics get hit with this wave of the world is fucked comics. <laughs> yes. And, and obviously they had started before that, but like there was something in the zeitgeist in the water, you know, all different forms of it, but all comics were like apocalypse, you know, like, like a third of images output output was apocalypse at the time the pandemic was starting. And I was like, this is not okay. Anyway, go ahead. I, I had written these these books, um, Mr. Miracle, Heroes, uh, and Batman, which were basically the sort of along this theme of like, sometimes you get hurt. Sometimes you get hurt real bad. But if you find love and comfort, you can sort of get through these bad moments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like, there, there was like a genuine niceness to those books. And then after like, that was like a 2016, 17 thing. So when I, 18, 19, I was, the, the niceness would turn into quite a bit of anger. You know, like, mm-hmm. it was, I was, I was, I was ready to write some angry books, some books that were about like corruption and evil. And so that, that that's where I sort of started with the book. And I mean, it, it started and from you, a place. You, you thought of it in terms of you were thinking about those concepts and then you were trying to figure out a thing to push it into. Yeah. Sort of those sort of bigger themes. Uh, I mean, I mean, this book started, like, I mean, we, 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 I had the basic pitch for it before Mr. Miracle ended. So we're talking 2017 or something mm-hmm. or 2018 around that. I have no concept of time. So whatever you say, I'm going <laughs> yes, to do. Me neither. I, that's what I vaguely remember. Uh, and it, it, I mean, it was early enough that the Mueller investigation still seemed like something interesting. Le- legitimate, like that it was going to be amazing. Like, <laughs> like there would like, be consequences for stuff that happened. Like a lot of us, especially of, of of us of the narrative inclination, we're like, whoa, Robert Mueller's a fucking Vietnam vet, Republican, soft spoke. He was like the anti-Trump, right? Mm-hmm. He was like – and he was – Trump was just spilling all his stuff out. And Robert Mueller was like, I'm just going quietly along, gathering evidence. And we're like, oh, it's coming. It's coming. Like the hero – you know, the Gary Cooper's riding into town. It's going to be high noon. Like that – there was still that spirit in the air. <laughs> Uh, which seems so ridiculous now. <laughs> we hadn't quite had it whipped out of us. No, we so I think that was in the back of my head. Uh, I, someone had sent me, a, this is so absurd, but someone had sent me a mean tweet uh, right around the time I was thinking of this. Because I, I had to come up with the idea. I was at Mitch's place 
I was there for kids' baptism uh, in Arizona. And we were sort of going through shelving, like, what should we do next? And he's like, uh, how about Adam Strange? And I was like, oh, okay. And so so, that, so I, I went to my hotel that night. And I was just bored out of my mind. So I just tried to think of this idea. And I think that night someone had sent me a tweet being like, Tom King is a war criminal who writes comics to hide that fact. Like it was something like that. <laughs> I was like, that is not true at all. But it's kind of a cool story. You know, I was like. <laughs> Thank you, sir. I was like, I was it like, was definitely a sir. Yes. Yeah, so I was like. Thank you, sir. I I appreciate your anime emoji and uh, and so I, I was I, I, that tweet and then the Mueller Trump thing. I was like, what if this was like the idea of a guy being investigated uh, by someone else, and they were they were and, and it was it was it was a cat and mouse game with sort of a, a, a two people going directly at it, a la Mueller Trump. And one person was hiding their war crimes um, behind a facade of telling brilliant stories. And the other one uh, was actually a good person. And so that was that was the general sort of kernel of what the idea became. And as I was sitting there, I was like, OK, Adam Strange can be the war crime guy um, because he has this sort of weird past where he lived on another planet and came here and he'd been in this big war. And it's like, I needed a good character. I'd done so many fucking sad white guys. It's like, I don't want to do a sad white guy again. Um, and I had just watched as dumb as it is, uh, Mr. Terrific on the justice league. Um, not unlimited, just like action, which was a, which was an underrated little show on cartoon network. Huh. And I loved the Mr. Terrific episode. And I was like, how about Mr. Tr- Mr. Terrific is Mueller. Adam strange is Trump. And we'll go from there. And, and I, and also, also Mitch was having, I just put Mitch through the fucking ringer in terms of these nine panel grids for 12 issues. And I was like, if we could divide the art so that we could like tell two different stories at once, that would help Mitch. And Mitch and Doc are best friends. I was like, how yeah. about if Doc tells the story? And I literally pitched it to Mitch over while we drove to get to Starbucks the next day. And that was the beginning of it. Evolved from there, but that's the beginning. Did it take much of a leap for you to be like, I guess I'll make Adam Strange the bad guy? <sighs> and do you consider him the bad guy? I know, like, you know, you had to make tough choices and everything. But in the end, he's the bad guy. Kind of. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, he's not – I mean, if, if my comics have one theme, and it's probably the exact wrong theme for this era, so I apologize. But it's, again, the theme of our generation, maybe not the generation of our – is that not all evil is completely evil. Sure. Not all good is completely good. Like, like my, my comics are about great. So are we doing total spoilers for everything in this? Is this like an after? Let's say that, yeah. It's after the fact. If you haven't read it, you should go back and read it. But I, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think there's any point in having this conversation if we don't talk about it. So, All right. so yeah, I, there's no <laughs> point in talking to you unless. Go ahead, sorry. But I mean, Adam Strange is is sort of an evil reflection of, of Scott Free, and I I like the idea from the beginning of like everyone was being like, oh, Tom writes about the same guy over and over again. It's this guy who goes through war and then he gets sad and then his wife helps him, and I was like. Adam Strange will be that, but instead of making the right choice, he'll make the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he, instead of being the... Because good, but good guys are formed that way, sure, but bad guys are also formed that yeah. way. Uh, and so everyone's going to think, I'm just creating another Scott Free, and the twist will be that I'm actually creating something mm-hmm. darker. That, that um, And so, yeah, so, so, so that's... 
And yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I mean, he's not the choice he makes makes sense to me in terms of being you can be a good person and make the choice he makes, which is he's he's like he's he's sitting there. He's been tortured. He's been drugged. Um, and he's facing this enemy and the enemy's like, I'm going to kill your daughter. I'm going to kill your wife. I'm going to kill your adopted planet unless you agree to do this. And he's like, my job is to save those to save my daughter, my wife, and my planet, and I agree. And I, I, I think he's he's not evil, but he's yeah, it, but he's a little dumb. He's it's, not as smart as. I think that's true. And at the end, you, you look at his choice, and you can say, "Well, I did the math or whatever." But I think it's it gets very difficult to justify giving up your kid, which, oh, oh, I mean, like as a parent or which you know, like it makes sense in all sorts of ways. But at the end of the day, no one can forgive that. I think yes. Yes, and then and also giving up the Earth. I mean, those are the two. <laughs> yeah, but but you, maybe even there, you see where my so mind went. But I don't remember the Earth thing. I remember the kid thing. That's right. That's what his wife remembers too. So that's that was Fair. a lot of point. Um, and telling your wife the lie. But in his head, he was just like, okay, I'm making. I mean, this is the only way to get this deal. I give up my kid for a year, and I get her back, and I get my planet back, and I get my wife back. Um. And, well, I, and make, I think that was the part as I went through them and it stuck with me. What you're saying makes sense, but the bits and, and I don't, this didn't make sense as I was reading it through the first time because I did not know. Um, it was, you know, he's with his wife and acting like everything is okay. And I think that's where he falls apart for me because that's not fair to her. Like he's, he's like, well, we get to be, you know, we get to be together. It's good, right? And maybe he's lying to himself or whatever, you know, but I mean, I'd shoot him too. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, he knows Adam's, uh, I'm someone asked, but just ask God for Like Adam is not, and he's a mo- So to get back to the origin stories of yeah. this whole, uh, which where it starts. So I, so I, I, I was like, okay, I'm going to write about Adam strange. I'm gonna do some research on sort of what the fucking Adam strange is. And so I read, you know, you start with the original. So I read the Carmine Infantino stuff and I was like, where does all this crap come from? So then I started reading sort of all these general narratives that were copied from this, you know, um, uh, basically Buck Rogers, uh, uh, what's his name, John Carter from Mars, mm. and Tarzan, and like there, and and all of that shit. I was like, oh, all of this is just cut. I mean, if you is this all just D. H. Lawrence's shit? It's the D. H. Lawrence story over and over again, where it's like white guy who's a failure in England. Um, you know, literally a bass, you know, as they used to call them second sons, goes over to a foreign land that's full of brown people, leads them to a revolution, marries the princess, becomes an incredible person. Um, and that's the Adam Strange story. It's, it's, it's just, it's a literal photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy of D.H. Lawrence. And, and by the way, that's the story of Dune, which is out in theaters right now. That's one of the books I read as research for this. The Dune is almost the ultimate distillation of that story. Uh, and, uh, so my, my feeling on that was always like that these men in actual real life are not as impressive as they make them out, that they make themselves out to be. There are people who couldn't succeed in one place. So they succeeded in another where they had the advantages of colonialism on their side. And so that was how I always thought of Adam as sort of, he's not, he's a guy who was kind of a, not that great architect who kind of fell into something and got beamed to another planet where he sort of had his advantages. So I, I projected that onto him where he's just not quite as competent and as good as someone like Scott Free. 
where, how do you, what is your thinking around the idea that, you know, that goes against, and this works for you narratively, but it goes against the idea of the superhero. So, you know, you hear Strange Adventures, you see the guy, he's got the fin, oh, he's a superhero, this is a superhero comic book, he's going to be that. And it isn't, so you're constantly playing against that idea through the whole thing, you know, where, you know, it's difficult not to see him as a hero because we are so trained over, you know, decades of reading superhero comics that it, it there's a cognitive dissonance that goes on through it. So, were, I mean, were you aware of that part and, and playing with it? Because I kept trying to, as I read back through it, and I, and I hope you design these to be reread because I don't know that you can get it the first time. Uh, but that, that puts a lot of onus, on, not onus, but uh, faith in your reader, I guess. Um, you know, like, did you, I guess you knew who he was right from the beginning, but you're playing against what we're thinking as we're reading it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, there was one website that kept giving reviews like, "Why does Tom endorse all these things that Adam's doing? He's becoming a criminal." He's be- and, and every, every time an issue would come out, you know, Mitch, I, I don't, I, I don't read that stuff, but Mitch would read it, and he would just be like, be like, "Should we just call him and tell him we're not on Adam's side? Should we send him an email or something <laughs> to be like, Adam's not our, is not the hero of this story?" Uh, I mean, I've played with that third rail before, and I've gotten burnt by it before. I mean, I got burnt bad with Wally West. Uh, trying to sort of fit him into a category of, of not being a always clean and always good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you say you I, got burnt by it though, does it a lot, just that a lot of people didn't like it or. I, I mean, if, if I look back at heroes in crisis, um, it got, I think it got overshadowed by the fact that people did not want Wally West to be in that position so that people didn't look at what the, it, to me, it's a, it's, it's. I, have you heard me talk about Robert Redford in this context before? I, I don't know I if don't I don't want think. to repeat myself. I don't know. Um, I think so. uh, what's this? William Goldman has the famous book on screenwriting that everybody hears. Yeah. That's right, right. And um, in his book, he talks about the movie. I can't remember what it was, but it's it's a movie about a stunt a stunt plane guy, and it's with it stars Robert Redford. They made it into a movie. You can rent it, I'm sure. And he loved the movie because it was about this stunt plane guy who, like, in his whatever 50th mission is, is on a stunt plane and a girl falls on the wing and he goes on the wing to get her and his hand slips and the girl falls over. And it's about sort of the stunt man sort of dealing with his life after that, after, after fucking up and watching a, 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 a girl fall off his plane. And Goldman says he goes into the movie theater for the first time and watches it. And as he's watching it, he, he realizes he's made a huge mistake and the audience is just hating this movie. And he's like, the, the big mistake was they just could not accept that Robert Redford, this golden boy, would not save that girl on the plane. I could have put Robert De Niro in there. I could have put Al Pacino in there. But Robert Redford is not going to be on a plane holding someone's hand and let go. And once they saw that, they just weren't buying the movie. And I was like, oh, I was like, finally I understand what went wrong with Heroes in Crisis. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I, <laughs> I was like, once, once I had put Wally West as the guy who made a mistake, who tried to make up for it, who kind of, the people just weren't, he was the symbol of hope and rebirth. And even though I was like, this is totally logical. He lost his kids. He went crazy. Nope, nope, nope. This is Wally West. He's not going to do it. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, I made the Robert Redford mistake. I cast that's really wrong. interesting. I think that's, that's, that's definitely there. I mean, I think if I look at that story, uh, yeah, I think there's an emotional component to the characters that we can't get past sometimes, which makes Adam Strange a pretty good choice because he's pretty innocuous. Like, I like the Finn, but that's not really... 
Like I like the idea of the symbol of the, I, I like the design, you know, and what it represents in terms of time. But I don't know anything about the dude. Yeah, he never. If you go back and actually read his stuff, he hadn't really had any great series. Even the original's not that great. It's very guard. I mean, maybe people love Gardner Fox. He did so many good things for the comic industry. But just as a, as a issue to issue writer. His his stories were super repetitive. They were very much sort of suck up to Julie Schwartz stories, um, which Julie Schwartz has sort of a a format that he wrote in where you can like introduce a problem, introduce a sort of science method to solve the problem, solve the problem. Everyone's happy. Everyone is generic 1950s guy with a smile. Right. Blonde hair, blonde hair, blue eye. Uh, and th- so those stories are, I mean, they're. They're beautifully drawn. I mean, it's Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson. Like you can't be, you can't have better drawn stories than that. But, but they're boring. And then you know he's kind of floated in and out and never really had anything great. They tried to sort of watchmen him. They tried to give him a dark sort of series in the in the late '80s with Andy Kubert art, which is brilliant. The art wow. could not. Yeah, it's Andy inked by his brother, inked by Adam, and uh, and it's just if you ever find that series, just flip through it for the art. But the actual series itself is a little. It's done. It's it's done by like the art director at the time and it's it's just it's not that great no no offense to it but the art is so beautiful and then you know he fl- like he became canadian jeff lemire made him canadian in, in the aughts for a while i remember that i remember after yeah. uh after 52 he and was it booster gold were in a series together he was okay he, at that point but i i think it's more like a character like i want to like because i don't really have any reason to yeah, it was him and Animal Man and Starfire Animal had like Man. a fun Not series. Yeah, that was it. Which I probably read the way I read comics back then, which was to listen to the summary of it on iFanboy and then get the trade. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, I, yeah, that was that was probably his best series, which was kind of a – I think Pascal Ferry was on art. Uh, I think that sounds right. Mystery in Space? Mystery in – yeah, something like that. And uh, – yeah, but he's not. I mean, he's not central to anyone's dreams of anything. He was. I think he's he's perfect in that that he's kind of known enough that you, if you twist him, it hurts. But not known enough that it was. It's kind of bad casting. So to me, he fell sort of in in that nice zone. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it had been if it had been Captain Comet, no one would have. Like, you need some element of people to care yes. about the twist. So. You've got that. You've got that basis. And then we have we talk about the construction of it. Now you know what the overall story is, but you're time jumping back and forth, and you're working with two different artists. And I wonder, like, how did where do you start with something like that? That's that's massive. And I know I mean, you're kind of planning like a novel, I assume, but there's other elements. Like, are 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 you laying out the plans for it? Are you working with Mitch and Doc on that, or like where do you well, start? First, we settled on. The, the Darwin. I, mean, I feel like it's shitty talking about Darwin Cook with you because you know Darwin much better than I ever ever knew him. Um, but but it was it was new. We we, we stole a new frontier Darwin grid, which is the sort of the three panel grid. Mm-hmm. Um, which which I think ninety percent of people who read New Frontier Darwin is such a good storyteller they don't even realize he's using a grid. Yeah. Uh, and once we sort of had that. So th- all right, this is going to sound pretentious, but I'll be a little fucking pretentious. But um, I had never read Love and Rockets before. That just had escaped my comic sure. knowledge. And I was like, okay, I want to go back and read this. So I was reading Love and Rockets, especially um, the Jaime stuff. And it's hard, to, it's hard to read Love and Rockets at first. I don't know if you've gone back I, into I, it. But... I never made it past the first book. 
but I had a, you know, it's one of those things like, I know this is better than what I'm experiencing, it, but I hadn't put the time into it. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way that this many people regard it this highly and, uh, and they're wrong and I'm, and I'm not getting it for some reason. Like, anyway, yes, go ahead. Yes. It's, it's, it's one of those things where you have to have faith that it's good. You can't just like start off reading a few pages and be like, oh, why am I being drawn in the story? And one of the reasons that happens is because they, Jaime doesn't do transitions between his panels. He'll be like, he'll skip five years between two panels and, and, and you'll have two different characters that, that haven't appeared for 50 issues talking to each other. And you're like, what is, it's, it's jarring and it's hard storytelling. But as I was reading, it, it was like washing over me. I was like, oh, I kind of like this. Cause I'd already done these very, you know, I'm, I'm doing them again in most of the projects I'm writing now, but at least at, at that time when I was starting those things, I was like, I want to do mid-page transitions where we don't tell the audience the transitions coming, like Jaime, like Jaime Hernandez says. I just think it's there's something brilliant about it, and there's something nice about contrasting two panels like that. So, I was, so that, that was the other thing. I was, I was like, okay, I'm gonna do, we're going to do three panel grids, and we're not going to have page flip transitions. So, like, Doc is on page one, Mitch is on page two. We're going to do, like, panel to panel it was like you know mitchell do 1.3 1.1 and then doc will do 1.2 and then mitchell do 1.3 and that, kind of thing. And that was built <sighs> into the scripts and that was built into the scripts yeah Jesus. so so i would write i would write the scripts um and since they were all in the three three panel i mean i, I the rule was for for mr miracle we had a rule that the scripts could not be it was all nine panel grids until we broke the nine panel in issue 11 um, for this one, we're like, okay, we can break the three panels and we can break them, uh, into nine, into nine panels, or you can break them into six panels, you know, basically other versions of the grid. Um, mm-hmm. you couldn't break them into like eight panels. It's like, I think of it like, there's like a New York city apartment. Like you've got this size, <laughs> it, it, you know, it works like the railroad. You can put in a weird wall over here if you want to, but it's still going to be the same basic thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so it's so we could, yeah, we could we could do nine panels. We could do six. We could do, you know, three on top, two in the bottom. So you could do five. So we, but as long as it's sort of, yeah, exactly, like a, like a New York, yeah, exactly, the railroad, the railroad. And because of that, I could just be like, I, I mean, I, I, I just, I mean, it's super easy. I'm, I'm not fucking that smart, but I was like, okay, you know, every every page is going to be, you know, panel one, panel two, panel three. If I do one point one, that's if I, if I do 1.1 and 1.2, that means panel one is divided in half. If I do 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, that means panel one is divided in threes. Um, and so, and, and then I, then I just, when I finish the script, I put doc next to the doc pages and Mitch next to the Mitch pages and, uh, uh, panels and, uh, and sent them off. And then what the guys did, no, 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 you have to imagine Mitch and this could not be done among right. artists who are not as close as Mitch and Doc. Those guys have been together for 15 years as best friends. Right. Even though they don't live together, they don't live together, but and Doc's in Michigan and Mitch is in Arizona. Uh, but by the way, I know both of them because I found them on the iFanboy boards. That's where I first saw both Mitch and Doc because they are part of Twart, which was you guys were. Yep. Promoting. That was, that was huge around that time. Yeah. That, 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 that's, I, that was, the, that was when I learned about comic art basically. So yeah, they, they came along at the same time. That, that's how I became fans of both of their arts. Huh. Uh, was I, I have a, I have I want to work with every twerk artist I work with I think like most of them like seventy five percent maybe I'll never get Gabriel Hardman because he only writes for himself I'll never get I, got, I, I did a four pager with Gabriel Hardman so you're ahead of me fine yeah. 
No one's ever read it, but I did it. I'm looking at a page on the wall right now. <laughs> that felt so good to tell you. Can I just say, like, I don't have a lot, but you're saying it. As you're saying it, I am looking at the page. And I was like, oh, I did. <laughs> See? Fine. Shove it in my face. I did. So. Anyway. Did you work Anyways, with Somni? Yeah, so that worked. Never worked with Somni. He's been off in Kirkman land yeah, for, like, last up, three yeah. years. Uh, but I, I would... I would love to. I never even got a sketch from Somni. Ugh, I waited in line once forever, and it was just like the guy in front of me got the last. Wait, hold on. Hold on. Let me just turn around here. Oh, there it is. <laughs> oh, there it is up on the wall. <laughs> you can tell what, what, a, what a keen eye for pop culture I have because I have a sketch of Paul Crocker from Queen and Country. <laughs> That's what I decided on. <laughs> that is so incredibly 2007. <laughs> it's so good. It's early in that, I think. It's so good, though. I'll, I'll send you a picture of it. It just, he drew like files on the desk, and like there's just a couple of quick lines that indicate what it is, but the way that he does things, it's just, it's beautiful. I love it. So, so good. By the way, you just heard me talk about a sketch of a minor character from a minor series, and what I talked about was the files on his desk that he drew. That's it's yeah. it's the that's that's how you tell stories. It's the little things that make it come to life. Mm-hmm. Where I knew were we? <laughs> Where were we? Anyways, yeah. So uh, artists, they worked. Yeah. So 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 Mitch and Doc worked. I mean, they, so what? What my understanding was, and you can ask, but but they would both get the scripts, and then they would tear out the other person's part. So they would even read the other person's. Oh wow! They they, they would really and be like, okay, what am I drawing here? And then a few times, I mean, less than 10 times throughout the whole thing, they'd be like, what are you drawing on this panel just so I don't overlap with you or something? But very few times. And then, so they also were coloring themselves. See, I Um, thought you were going to say that that they, like, worked together to make sure the compositions match each other. But that's clearly not the case. Very done independently, except for a few exceptions, like I said, under 10. Uh, And... They would color themselves, and at the end, Doc would send his pages to Mitch, and Mitch would do sort of the final computer work to merge the pages, mm-hmm. and then and then send them to DC. And then the poor DC had to figure out how to pay them because you know sometimes they had a third of a page, and sometimes they had, you know one fifth of a page, and all those sort of things. And um, the most tempting thing was the nine panel grid, with which Ethan drawing every other panel was like the most tempting thing to use because that's so powerful. But I had to again save that for issue eleven when the the final shot sort of happened. That would have been a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, so when you're building like a, 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 I think I talked to somebody about, I think I talked to Matt Rosenberg about this, is that one of the things that sort of astounds me, and, and this would come into play in Rorschach too, too is uh, the idea of writing a mystery story in that way, I find it incredibly, uh, um, it feels so challenging. Like, I, I, I don't like mysteries sometimes because I'm like, I don't know if I could do that. And I think that bothers me <laughs> just because <laughs> me too. Same. <laughs> well, you've got this whole thing where, you know, the answer and you've got to tease it out in just the right way and give and you don't want to blow it. And it just feels like such a that's so hard to do in a way that's going to come across. You kind of just got to trust yourself entirely to do it. But, you know, I, you've done this a few times or whatever. But like, do you feel like there's parts where you're trying not to give away things too early, but also not hide them. And, and, you know, like whether that's working, you know what I'm I'm saying? Like there's bits, several issues before the quote unquote reveal, you know, you've got Adam Strange acting very off putting. And I think between you and the art, like it comes across completely now that I know, but at the time when I'm, you know, you're reading it originally, you're like, this is very strange. And it's, it's very cinematic in that way. Um, 
I mean, is that a thing you're planning for? You're always sort of doing that balance and hoping it works. Yeah. And inevitably your audience, I mean, I, again, I, I had the lucky, I don't know if you call it lucky, but I had this thing where people always, they thought they knew me well enough to know where I was going with a story at this point. Mm -hmm. So like they didn't notice how, broken Adam was and sort of the bad things he did because they just assumed he was another scot-free and I was telling that same story so it was it was it was nice to use sort of the assumptions about and not just about me but what, about what Mitch and I did about like oh this is a Tom Mitch story about sadness and redemption mm-hmm. uh and to use that as the twist but it, it did you know an issue would come out and I'd be like okay now it's on the table now everyone knows Adam's evil and then people would be like mm, maybe Adam's not evil and I'd be like no he's definitely I mean, I did that. I was like, oh, there's, there must be another thing. Well, it's it's interesting that you said this about uh, Hernandez brothers is that you, you know, at the beginning, you just have to trust them. And I feel like I think of your work that way. Like, I have to understand, like, in the beginning, I, I don't I don't understand this. And that's okay. That's how it's supposed to be. But I know that I trust you that something's, you know, at the very least, I know that it will be thoughtful and it will be it will be worked out. Um you know, and that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, it's a risk for you and it's a risk for the readers, but like, you know, you can build that thing over time, but you know, it's, it's scary. <laughs> like, I, it, it means that you have to trust readers a lot more than I would, I think is, is what I'm getting. But, you know, obviously there's enough people who are getting it and dig it. But like, do you, like, are you aware of that? Like at the beginning, like nobody's going to understand the damn thing about this until issue four. I, I feel like I'm so – I mean if, I, I always want to say people like, have you ever read a Grant Morrison comic? I don't understand a fucking thing that's happening in yes. these things. And everyone calls and, – and everyone be like, no, trust Grant Morrison. He knows the secret to life and, and there's genius behind these panels. And so I always feel like, oh, well, I'm, at least I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, I feel like I'm, I'm one tone down from, from that. Uh, but yeah, I mean I have faith in a comic book audience and I have faith that when the – I mean, you're not writing for a trade, but your legacy is going to be the trade. The the, the issues only last so long. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, w- I wonder how what you were saying, you know, you swerved basically because they'd seen the other things that had come before it. And on this one, you did the opposite. Now, that, that only works now unless everybody who ever reads your stuff reads it in the order it came out. Not that that'll <laughs> make it worse, but it did occur to me. That's true. Uh, well, hopefully it, it works independently as a story. God, I don't know. You can only knock on wood. Some of it is faith. Some of it's happy accidents. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I imagine that's that's sort of the trick about eventually you're just like, oh, I'll just jump off this cliff. I've always landed before, which is how I've described my adulthood. But, you know, with, with your stories, <laughs> that's that's what you're doing to a certain extent, although you get to understand the machinations of them more as you go through them. I don't think Grant Morrison does. I think he's just like, here it is. It's great. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, uh, well, here's a good example from Strange Adventures. So for, before each issue, before I start writing each issue, I would ask Doc and Mitch, like, what do you want to draw for this issue? Like, is there something you're dying to draw? You just got inspired. You want to draw. <clears throat> and poor Doc um, was stuck on Rand the whole time. And I'm, I think he got bored out of his mind of fucking that. Uh, he's like, oh, I can't. I, I talked to him about this. Like, I can't draw this goddamn Finn anymore. <laughs> it's just like, I want it. And on issue three or four, he's, he's, he's like, can I draw Superman? Can I draw Green Lantern? And I was like, how am I going to get Superman into the store? Uh, so I had like him go to Earth and ask Superman, like, hey, will you come help me? And he asks Hal Jordan, hey, will you go? And both of them are like for different reasons. Like, no, dude, you, this, is, this is not – Rand has to solve this problem themselves. We can't sort of fight their war for them or else we'd be fighting a thousand wars. Uh, 
And at the time, like I literally, I put that in just because Doc really wanted Superman. Those were, those were good beats, but he wanted to draw Superman and Green Lantern, so I wanted to put that in. When we got to the end of the story, I was facing this dilemma where I was like, I set up this whole story, but I was like, I see a plot hole in my service. Like I was like, why didn't he just go to Superman and, and Green Lantern and be like, shit, these guys are about to take over my planet. And then I was like, oh shit, I actually had those scenes in. Thank God. <laughs> I put those in issue three where he actually did the thing that it plugged that plot hole that I was so afraid of. And I was like, oh, that's such, sometimes the story gods are kind to you. That was like one of those good examples of the story gods being kind where it was like, I could, if someone was like, what? This would never happen because he just asked Superman for help. I was like, I literally had a scene where he asked Superman for help and Superman said no. Um, what a dick. Superman. <laughs> I, you know, oh, I make, find that, It I, makes sense to me. That's a good reason. Him no, it like, is a really good. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that you in a, cause I tend to think of these things as pretty tightly plotted and, and you've got so much room and you're trying to get to a point to be able to say like, what is it you want to draw and have room for something like that? I wouldn't have thought you'd been able to do that on these. Like, I know that that happens in, you know, month to month comics. Cause you just like, what do you want to do? I want horse races. Okay. Alien horses, you know, like no, no artist has ever asked for horse races, but either way, um, that you were able to do that and have that freedom. That's interesting. I mean, generally speaking in comics, you, if if you know your theme and know your plot, if the artist wants to draw something, you should be able to sort of mold them around that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that that's just been my general experience. Uh, so like, I, I you know, it's it's funny. The doc stuff probably changed the most. The Mitch stuff probably is exactly what I envisioned from day one to the end. Um, except I really liked how how Mitch was brought Alana to life, so it probably made her more cool than I sort of had originally intended. Uh, but the Doc stuff, at the beginning, Doc was supposed to draw sort of more of an ideal, more of the idea that he was, like, drawing the lie. That was sort of my original idea. Yeah. Doc will draw the lie, Mitch will draw the truth. And very quickly it became, because I always think of Doc as being, even though I've worked with him before, I know this is not true, it's almost like, it's hard to escape, like, Doc draws, draws sort of the ideal Silver Age stuff, he does this stuff with Parker, where he, like, taps into that stuff with, so brilliantly, and I like the Shazam series, and then um, the Johnny Quest stuff. And, uh, but, like, very quickly I realized, like, like Doc wanted to get bloody, he wanted to get dirty, he wanted to draw. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, like around issue three, I was like, oh, he's, he, he, it, it looks beautiful, but he wants to tell some mean stuff. And Doc had created, like I had done very little world building for Ran. I was just like, Ran, it's a stupid planet with, you know, it's a sci-fi Star Trek planet, who cares? And Doc is like, okay, here are the seven, like, different types of alien tribes. Uh, here's their design. Here's where they live. Here's this. And, he, you know, he did that map, which was, he did that on his own mm-hmm. that appears in issue 10 or 11. And he's, he's like, this is a map of the world. This is where everyone lives. And I was like, I was like, oh, so at that point I was like, okay, we're going to change our plans because Doc will actually just draw what actually happened to Adam, but we'll have gaps where we don't see the actual betrayal. Um, Because if I had put, if if Doc and I had stayed inside that box for, I mean, it takes him, you know, this is a two year journey. That would just fucking, that would ruin two years of his life. You know, like that's not, whatever my original plan was, it's not worth Doc's life for two years. And it's not worth alienating artists I want to work with in the future and a personal friend of mine. So when I saw that he wanted to go in that direction, I adjusted the story. Mm-hmm. Um, he is, he is, I think, if not the, you know, at least top three most underutilized artists in comics. Like I, Connor and I talk about this all the time. Like we don't understand why 
you don't immediately put him on Superman or whatever the hell he wants to draw. I, I <laughs> don't understand. It does not make sense. I'm sure you have been privy to conversations. You know things that I don't, but that is my feeling that uh, he's he's uh, he's woefully underappreciated. I I I, well, I wouldn't say he's underappreciated because I appreciate him. Sure, and no, I, obviously you do. And he and he gets I mean, he gets a ton of love. I mean, no, yeah. he can post a picture up there and get three thousand likes every day of his life because he just draws people's dreams of superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, there's nowhere for Doc to go but up. I mean, he's, he could be the next. I mean, he he draws like a modern day Darwin Cook, but it's yeah. but it's not what it's not like he's copying what Darwin no. did. Darwin did something different, um, but he captures that sort of essentialism of DC Comics better than many a, many artists. There's just a joy and a beauty in that line of his. He's got he's just got an amazing line, and and yeah, he he does. He captures that thing that to me is the thing that DC should be trying to be. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I mean, Don't like worry, that's yeah. exactly like what is it that what is it about these superheroes? Well, that's what they should look like. It's all right there in that that picture. Um, so let us let us let us move over, uh, and and we will talk about Rorschach probably for less time. But what do I know? <laughs> um, that's a much more complicated series. Just in terms really, of do you look at it that way? I mean, I guess it's more panels. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a lot more panels. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it. Yeah, it's I don't know more complicated. I know it, it, Strange Adventures feels more like a straight line. Rorschach is definitely a sort of jagged kind of thing. And did this? Did that? I mean, were you offered like, hey, you want to do a Rorschach story, or or like, do you have something in Watchmen you'd like to do? Like, where does this one start? So Dio, when he was Dan Dio used to be editor in chief of DC Comics for many many years, uh, and. He had gone to some meeting before the Watchmen TV show come out where they were like, Watchmen is now a brand and we're going to make money off of it. And Mitch and I were just finishing Mr. Miracle and he texted me and he said, Mitch, and I had, I think I had pitched him Strange Adventures at that point. He's like, fuck Adam Strange. Because <laughs> Dan's job is to sell comic books and Adam Strange is not the biggest selling comic book. <laughs> and if you're like, yeah, Mr. Terrific's in it too. Oh my God, no. <laughs> it's like, uh, fuck Adam, fuck Adam Strange. And uh, Rorschach, you and Mitch, like you guys are coming off this big Mr. Miracle thing. I'm going to put you on a big character. We're going to make big money. That was his basic idea. And I was like, not only no, but hell no. Why would I ever want to fucking do that? I was like, I'm already kind of like the diet Alan Moore, you know, I'm like the the RC Cola (laughs) of Alan Moore. Yeah. Did you come up with that or somebody call you that? No, that's all me. Okay. But maybe Alan Moore probably told me once in my face, but I, I, I blocked it out because I have psychological uh, defense. No, um, no, that came up with it. So I, I was like, why would I ever want to go head to head with the guy? You know, that seems like uh-huh. an absolute idiot thing to do. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but <laughs> it would be, be like just, just Justin Timberlake being like, hey, Marvin Gaye, can I sing all your songs? You know, <laughs> like just, uh, but, so, so that happened. I said no. I agree with that analogy, by the way. Not, not that you are. I just like the Marvin Gaye versus Alan. Moore. Anyway, just I'm, I'm with you. I didn't want. I didn't want you to think that that fell on flat ears. Thanks, brother. Uh, and so uh, two things happened after that that changed my mind. Uh, number one, the TV show came out, and the TV show was like important and good, and we all thought it was just going to be Watchmen, but divided into more parts. 
Like that was, I don't know why, but we all, I ever, it I was, thought that was true. It was from out of nowhere. Yeah. It like, was like, like, no. At first you're like, I don't know what this is. And then pretty soon you went, wait a minute, is this really good? And then by the end you're, I can't believe how good this is. It doesn't it, even make sense. It, it was, it was, it was shocking. Uh, and it was even bad- make that for? That's what I kept asking. Who is this for? Because I guess you could enjoy it if you didn't know Watchmen, but if you knew Watchmen, like Jesus, it was it was a delight. I watched it once myself, you know, when we all watched it, and then uh, and then my wife was like, I heard about it, so I went and watched it with my wife. Who did, she maybe read Watchmen once, and but she's not like us, you know, where every Same. panel means something. And she's like, yeah, this, she was really into it. She's like, I want to know what happened next. Same like, here. What? Like Lindsay had read it, you know, fifteen years prior or whatever, and liked it but whatever never thought about it again and then yeah we were like we would watch it together every sunday night it was insane okay so you saw that so i saw that and i i i mean i don't know i want to be honest but but like the best way to express it is very cliche but it's like oh watchman is not just that same story over and over again watchman is like a language you know it was like it was like alan moore gave us like uh, like like letters we could type with you know like a different and, and we don't have to tell his story with those letters. Like a lot of, I feel like a lot of, I don't know. I, I'll say it. Before Watchmen tried to fill in a bunch of stuff that we didn't necessarily need to know. And therefore most of it was forgettable because we didn't need to know it. The thoughts of Josh on Watchmen before Watchmen have nothing to do with those of DC Comics or AT&T Enterprises or Tom King. I, I, I was afraid that if I wrote a story about Watchmen, it would just be like a bad cover song. Yeah. And... And I was really like, oh, no, I can use those same notes to make a different song. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that happened. And then the second thing that happened was, and I can say this now because DC management has kind of moved on, was that DC management did not like Jorge's art, Jorge Fornes. And I was, I had just worked out with him on this Batman annual, uh, and I got in the art for the Batman annual four, uh, which I think is maybe one of my favorite issues I've ever written. And I was like, oh, he's a genius. <laughs> Like, you know, like that happens every once in a while. You're getting an art from a guy who's kind of new and you're like, oh, no, wait, I've got one of those geniuses on my hands. Mm-hmm. How interesting. Uh, and I was like, I want to work with Jorge. And they're like, you cannot because we don't like his art. He just looks like Mazzucchelli. And I was like, yes, he looks like Mazzucchelli. Why would that be a bad thing? Mazzucchelli is one of the greatest artists that ever touched a pencil. Uh, and I knew they wanted me to do this Rorschach project. And I was like. I bet if I agree to do it and I say I'll only do it with Jorge, they will say yes. And so it, Jorge would have to be like, he was starting to get those Daredevil offers from Chip. Marvel was starting to pull it in with exclusives. And I was like, I got to act fast. And I was like, I'll do Rorschach if I can get Jorge. And they said, okay, yeah. Well, if Tom finally agreed to say yes on Rorschach, little did they know I'd write this sort of obscure little Rorschach. <laughs> they thought I'd write, you know, the next big um, before Watchmen thing. Have they read your stuff? <laughs> I don't know if anyone reads comics anymore, Josh. That's fair. Listen, go and, with it as long as you can get it. I'm not. I, you and I read comics. We're the last. We're the last dinosaurs. And uh, so yes, yeah, so that that's that's the genesis. That's a long story. Is to say the genesis of like okay, I got from hell no Watchmen to okay, I'll write a Rorschach series. And then this one is, I mean, I, I'm I don't want to say it's a straight up mystery, but it's it's basically a mystery. There's a lot of stuff going on. And uh, I can say, uh, I, I had no idea what it was going to be. And at the end, I don't think I saw any of that coming. And what I want to know is, 
Actually, you know what? This this has to do with both of them. And you have mentioned Silver Ridge creators a bunch of times. You know, you're obviously up to date on the history of these creators and, and the characters and things like that. And so throughout um, the back end of Strange Adventures, uh, there's quotes from creators who are not necessarily household names. You know, there's an Al Feldstein quote, I think. There's, uh, there's a Gil Kane quote at one point. And then in this book, you have, you know, you have Frank Miller and you have other <laughs> real comic book, uh, you know, people, real people, creators from, from history. You know, is that, is this just where you're at now? Like you're thinking about this history all the time is, is, has that always been an element of what you're thinking about? I don't know where it's where I was at, where I'm at now, but it's definitely where I was at two or two or three years ago when I conceived these comics. I mean, you could, like I said, when we started this off, like, like I figure I, I kind of I know how to write comics. I have that piece, and it's like looking for the inspiration. Usually, the inspiration is what you're obsessed with on the side. It's like what you, you know, it's like life is what you do during recess, or the fuck that phrase is. Um, and, and at that time, I was obsessed with two things. I was obsessed with old noir movies. I was watching them constantly, and I was obsessed with comic book history. Mm. And I was like reading. Like, like if I just wanted to be like, okay, I want to escape my world. I would go and read. I go and read issues of the Comics Journal from 1982, wow. just cover cover to cover, and be like, man, these guys would have hated everything I do. I love it. Uh, <laughs> or uh, yeah, so I, I I became obsessed with all these like. Usually it was stuff before I was born, Bronze Age, Silver Age stuff. Right. Not like the stuff from when I was. I've never been nostalgic about my own childhood for some reason. I'm nostalgic for my parents' childhood. Uh, and, uh, but you know, other, other things I would do, I would go back and watch, uh, old iFanboy, uh, comic con videos. God damn, those are fun. If you're ever bored, go on YouTube and watch those. You guys were, it's so funny to see like baby Robert Kirkman and, and like everyone has so much hair and we're all thin. It's awesome. I didn't um, know what I was doing. It was great. You were a great interview viewer. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, I mean, I guess it's sort of my question is, so was I, when I'm seeing that stuff, I am looking for some symbolism. So when the quotes are in the back of Strange Adventures, I'm thinking, well, what does this mean? And, and, and you know, you've got the characters in the middle of, of the Rorschach story. And, I, and I'm, well, what is this supposed to be saying to me? And, and what I'm wondering is, I guess, you're just like, I thought that shit was cool, so I put it there. <laughs> yeah, it's like um, it was in Mulholland Drive where the first time you watch it, you're like, oh, my God, there's so much incredible symbolism here. And then someone tells you, oh, that was a TV pilot that they never did the second issue. They never did the second episode of. So you're like, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, for the for Strange Adventures, the idea was if you look at those, it's not just that I'm quoting comic book creators. I'm, they're all artists. Yeah. Every single one of them is a Silver Age artist. These are guys who are drawing. And so the first connection was this is an art driven book. I was like, I have the, in, in my opinion, two of like the, the best top five artists in comics working on the same book at the same time. And so that was just one call out to be like, I want to give artists a voice because this book is about giving these people the room to be creative and to draw. I mean. And the second part is most of those quotes sort of revolve around the difference between the idealists of what these guys were doing. They were drawing these ideal worlds. Um, uh, and not just guys, because, you know, Marie Severin's in there and Ramona mm -hmm. Fraden's in there. Uh, but, 
God, I tried so hard to get a Matt Baker quote, but he, no one ever interviewed him. Uh, and, uh, um, and the, the difference between them creating these idealized worlds and living themselves in real, in the real world. Mm -hmm. And that, and that's what the book was about. It was about the difference between people who create, who, about telling stories about beauty while living in the ugly of the reality. And so, so that, that's what the general quote was about. It was about the distance of people create of people who create ideal worlds who live in the reality of and in our reality with the reality of comics. And the only way you're going to find that is if, for fun, you read old issues of the Comics Journal, cover to cover, because that's <laughs> not easy stuff to find. Well, I, I, yeah, no, I mean, to to me, it makes sense, and uh -huh. I feel like. Uh, I'm I'm just impressed that you found enough to be able to do that in each of them. I think that that's, and and I'm, that is that is 100 the most fascinating thing about creators of those eras. And did you read um, Hey Kids Comics by Howard Chaykin? Yes, I read the first volume. I okay. read the second one. The second's almost more of the same, but it really is. It is another one. Like who the hell enjoys this except me? <laughs> like every time Connor and I talk about it, it's like we can't imagine anyone else is reading this. He's not making money off this. There's no way. I would very much enjoy it. Oh, it's just it's, and I, it, for us, a lot of it is like I know they're all analogs to real people, and I'm kind of annoyed that he won't say. But we get to play the mystery game of like I think, I think that's Neil Adams. I'm not sure. You know, I think, but um, yeah, that's no, I. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's amazing if you look back at these, like, my favorite artist in the whole world is Alex Toth. Um, and that guy, I just think he draws more, more, like, as a guy who put pen to paper in comics, he just, I just think he draws more beautifully than else. And that guy lived a miserable life where he ended up uh, uh, very much with OCD where he didn't leave his, I mean, he'd be perfect for now, but he didn't leave his apartment, he didn't leave his house for, like, 15 years at the end. And, like, he had stacks of papers and, you know, he just died alone listening to Rush Limbaugh, you know. Uh, and she's just like the difference between like if you look at his art of just like I'm going to draw this ideal, this beautiful 30s, gorgeous world and, and bring that into the 50s and the 60s and connect it all to modernism and him being stuck in his house being like, I can't get out. I can't get out. I mean, to me, that that tension that there is just I mean, that's that's the, the beauty of our medium. It, it, it goes back to Frank Miller. I, I was talking right. to Frank about this Um I wasn't talking to him, but I I was doing an interview for for a, a a documentary about Frank and his partner, who was directing the, the the movie, invited me up to a hotel room to sort of do my interview. And I'm there in a suit and and uh, and she's asking me a question like what comics is and what comics isn't. And you know we're talking about sort of all the ideals of comics. And then I was like I was like, but at the end of the day, people forget that comics is like a deadline medium. It's not a meeting about people making the best they can make. Nobody here is like Picasso. We're people who are trying to make something for a paycheck. And Frank Miller, who I had no idea was in the hotel, jumped out from the other room and was like, exactly, finally someone fucking said it. <laughs> <laughs> I never felt more better about myself in my life. Um, he's, 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 like, he's like, yes, we're a deadline medium. We're not this idealist bullshit. Like we have to turn in our stuff. But then you get the, the magic comes from the people who are doing that in spite of that. Yes. Although I don't usually think it's intentional. That's my guess. Anyway, because <laughs> uh, you're just doing the thing you do. And you, anyway, that, that has nothing to do. So is that, you know, I guess, is that how we're, so how does this relate to those appearances in the Rorschach book? I mean, it's a lot of, 
I mean, a lot of sort of forces came together to sort of uh, get. I mean, Rorschach himself, as a character who lives in the Watchmen universe, is a commentary, yeah. is a second degree commentary on Steve Ditko, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's. I mean, obviously, Watchmen itself is both about the Cold War and all that stuff, but it's also about the process of making comics. So much to the extent that Joe Orlando is a character in Watchmen, although he only appears in the auxiliary material, but he's there. He's the guy who's drawing the the pirate comics. And also Gil Kane is very it appears in the comic. He's not called Gil Kane, but it's so obviously him. Um, and he's the guy who like designs the um, the monster at the end, and then he gets blown up in a boat while trying to hit on a girl. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is that you're you're like it's so obviously him. I was like I've literally never heard anybody say that. But I oh. also I haven't read it in such a, a not such a long time, but long enough so that I, I might recognize things I might not have before. But don't tell me that when you were like twelve, you know, or no. fifty, whenever it is, and you're like oh, this fucking Gail Kane. Come on, who are you trying no. to fool here, Dave? No, yeah, no. But when you get to the white haired, skinny, handsome comic book artist guy who's a little arrogant, and you're like, oh, okay, Gail Kane. Uh, uh, yeah, but so 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 when I think about Rorschach, I think about Steve Ditko. I can't sort of separate those two people, at least in in my head. And and it's weird because Rorschach is a parody of Mister A, who is a parody of Steve Ditko. So it's not like a direct, but it's all connected. Um, so in the very beginning of when I was, because I didn't want to write about Walter Kovacs, because I didn't want to Alan Moore's story about what happens to Walter Kovacs is done like yeah. it's perfect uh and i didn't want to write about what the sort of jeff had created was sort of son of rorschach um using this psychologist's son i wanted to write about just a completely different guy who kind of thought he was rorschach i was trying to figure out who this character was and i was like uh, the, the connection and then i was i was again going through comics journals and i was reading about steve dicko and and they had printed a whole issue on steve dicko and they printed his not just his Mr. A pages, but like the stuff that even came later in like the nineties and stuff, sort of his, this, when he, Steve Ditko at the end of, not the end of his life, but near the end of his life, like to defend himself, he would write in not to, I'm sure he'd be published in New York times, but he would write into like the most obscure fanzines and he would write like, you know, five page single spaced essays and why fucking comics suck. And, uh, and then he would accompany with them with like these illustrations and they are just like Unabomber crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm looking at these like bizarre drawings he did and these like long enconiums. And I was, I was like, this guy is Rorschach. I was like, it's and, yeah. and uh, I was like, this is this is absolutely amazing. But Alan Moore had sort of covered the sort of positivism, the sort of Ayn Rand of it all. And uh, and I was, I was like, what if there was a guy that was like this, but wasn't obsessed with Ayn Rand, but was obsessed with Hannah Arndt, who's like an exact contemporary of Ayn Rand who also comes from Germany also comes to America but it's on the left and not the right um, I, I, was, I was like oh I know that, that, that sort of appealed to me so it would be like Dicko but like a, a, a mere image of him from the other way so who's not obsessed with this woman but diff, uh, obsessed with a different female philosopher and uh, and, and, that, and then I started studying Hannah Arndt and, and then that, that sort of took off from there um, the Frank Miller, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. So that's that's where that started. And so then you just kept adding in other comics folk, and it's been a little, little while since I read it, so I don't quite remember all the details. But it's a certain point. It's like there are a lot of people here who are real <laughs> people, like like 
so when did you decide to put Frank Miller in it? So I was reading Bill Shelley's biography of Otto Binder. For people who don't know, Otto Binder was a sci-fi, a very early pulp sci-fi writer um, who came on to Captain Marvel near the beginning and did some of the seminal work there, creating like Mary Marvel and stuff. And then created super DC like was like, we want Mary Marvel. That's a big success. Let's hire the guy who did it and have him do it over here. And that's how Supergirl got born. Um, Interesting. And uh, so I was reading the biography of this of, of Otto Bender and late, later in life. Uh, I mean, just the same stuff we were talking about with Alex. With, you, know, you and I have met a lot of older comic book creators mm-hmm. and it's a it's a similar story with up until very, very recently. Once you hit 50 in comics, you had a kind of not nice knife. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not people like Bendis and Mark Miller are kind of trailblazing. Like you can be successful after 50 now, which thank God, right? Yeah. Um, but that well, didn't. You, you're me. getting there. <laughs> I know, right? I know. <laughs> I'm, fo- I'm, I'm following. I'm just looking at him like, okay, Netflix saved me. You know, you're like, uh, and. And but but it used to be and the same thing happened to Bob Binder. You know, as he got older, sort of his you know he he got less and less work, and he became and then the tragic thing that happened was so Supergirl and um, and Mary Marvel are based on his daughter. You know, he was kind of this old by all accounts and pictures, old sort of a flubby guy, and he had this sort of almost gorgeous angelic daughter who he idealized. And when she was sixteen, she was hit by a bus and killed, which is horrible. Uh, and he and that kind of broke him for the rest of his life, where he kind of became this kind of sad figure. And then, so I was reading reading this book, and then at one point in his sort of later life, he became obsessed with UFOs, and he became obsessed with the concept of listening to magnetic tape to see if UFOs and or the dead were communicating with him, sort of like spirits. And um, as part of that, he held a seance in 1963 or something. Um, and, and some nerdy, some very nerdy people who were like the original fan, uh, fan, you know, fanzine people were like, we love Audubon, he's awesome. You know, he invented this, they came out and, and he's like, you're coming to my house. You're just a nerd out before cons. And he's like, Hey, you guys want to do a seance with me? And they're like, let's do it. And they recorded the seance because they had a recording. So, so they were going to interview him. And so it was, it was these two fans, and, and they brought along with them another fan at that time, a 16-year-old kid from Vermont, who happened to be Frank Miller. Um, and I'm reading this, and I'm like, what? I was like, Frank Miller went to a seance with Otto Binder? I was like, that's an amazing thing. And there's an actual transcript of it. And Bill Shelley, in that book, has the transcript of, of Otto Binder reaching out. And, reaching, and, and what he did was he would turn on the tape, just like as in Rorschach, and he would reach out and be like, can I speak to my daughter? He was obsessed with his dead daughter. Um, and he would wait for his daughter to respond. And then he would ask each person to go around and speak to a dead person. Frank asks to speak to his grandmother. And they would listen. And then they would just the, – the tape would play. And then he'd play it back. And they'd listen to the little crackles in the tape. And they'd be like, oh, you hear that crackle there? That That's your grandma talking to you. And I was listening – and I'm, I'm reading this. And I'm like, so they're just listening to these crackles and they're hearing what they want to hear. And, and whoever hears – you know, tells you more about yourself than what the crack was. I was like, it's a fucking Rorschach test. (laughs) It's it's almost like the gift of story gods dropped this in my lap, right? (laughs) Jesus. Well, good, good pick. I mean, you, you, you grabbed that one out of the air. So, yeah. So then I was like, okay, then I'll, 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 so that's how I got to sort of, I wanted to do something. That's a real thing. That's a real thing that really happened. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, and one, one of the one of the real joys of Rorschach was when I was trying to convince Frank to do the book. Um, I called him. You, you know, usually you talk to uh, Frank's people, his, his team, or whatever. Not, but 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 I know Frank. We're friends. And, you know, not like super close, but we, we you know we have dinner if we're in town together. And um, I was talking to Frank on the phone, and I, I was so nervous because at one point he's like, "You got to send me the pages, you know, so I can read myself in this book." And I was like, just to give you some background, I was like, this references this thing that happened when you're six. And I, I, I expect him to be like, that didn't happen, Tom. It's a total lie. You know, he could have totally ruined my book. But he's like, oh, my God, I haven't thought about that in 50 years. Yeah, it was insane. Um, and uh, and he's, he's like, yeah, my grandmother had just passed and I wanted to. And, and he's, he's like, he, and he started telling this story about how when he met Otto Binder, he's like, it was so sad because he was obviously broken because his daughter had died. And we just kind of sat there humoring him because he was just so set, depressed about the death of his daughter. And I was like, oh, my God, this is just an amazing story. And so, so to hear, you know, to read it once in a book, but then have Frank say it, this happened. It was just amazing. Um, Who reads that book? <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not even being facetious. Like, that's one of those things like that sounds fascinating. And. But who's the audience for that? It can't be that many people. What's the book? Well, uh, uh, it's Bill Shelley's biography of Otto Bender. Bill Shelley wrote a, a, a bunch of – Bill Shelley passed away recently. Um, he was one of the original sort of um, – what do they call them? The, the, the fans um, – you know, the, the, like Roy Thomas, the, right. the original yeah. guys. That, that first generation of fans. Um, and uh, – and Bill, and Bill Shea wrote, wrote a series of books. He did, there's a biography of, um, uh, what else, who else did he do? He did, uh, Warren, Warren from Warren Publishing and he did, uh, Joe Kubert. Um, and I, I think the reason I read the Otto Bender one is the only one that was on tape. So I could listen to it on Audible while oh. I was driving my kids to school. That's how I picked that one out of the bunch. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, so, and then I, uh, but they're good. They're, they're very good. Um, it was it was very sad that he he passed. Uh, well, it's it's book. what's mostly sad is how many how sad all those those stories are. You know, like you know, you Alex Toth and Steve Dick. Well, Steve Steve Dicko didn't die, but he didn't he didn't live uh, <laughs> to a certain extent. Yes, Wallywood, and you know, it just goes on and on. Yes. Um. um uh, and uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's how that's how Frank got into the book. And. I mean, but the, the legal stuff is a whole other fucking. Yeah, I know. I was, I was thinking that. I thought, oh, that's and uh, and oh, and, and there's a link to Adam Strange because Otto Binder, he invented the first android, and his name was Adam Link. Now that's a weird name to us today, but to, back then Adam just meant man. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't as much anymore. So that just like man with computer word, and of course Adam, that's Adam Strange, Adam Link. It's all just that's where it's stolen from. So there's Adam Strange. There you go. But you know, so. I guess pulling back a little, that's a lot of things to pull into what would be a Rorschach story. This is not, this is not the blockbuster that Dan DiDio uh, envisaged, uh, clearly. No, it was, it was this small story about comics and paranoia and, uh, and no Walter Kovacs and no squid monsters. And it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was something different and told with the, um, uh, you know, uh, Citizen Kane to- storytelling technique and that mm-hmm. whole thing. Mm-hmm. It, uh, I mean, was it like, did you have it envisaged when you started that it turned out the way that you sort of pictured it or did it turn into a different thing? Cause I feel like it, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but I, I feel like it started in, in one place and became a very different type of thing. Were you, were you aware of the beat of what happens 
at the, and I don't remember any characters' names ever. At the end, you know, where where the the investigator yeah. or they kill resident Columbo. Yeah, uh, that's what Connor calls him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, like you had those beats, but sort of in the middle, you. I was going to use meander, but I don't mean that in a negative way. There's just a lot there. It is. It's a lot. No, I mean the the story was always from the beginning was a detective investigates an attempted murder or attempted assassination. And during the investigation, he realizes that the assassination was justified and he carries it out. That was always sort of the plot. Mm-hmm. And, and the Rorschach of that all is like, he's seeing all these pieces of the puzzle and there's different ways to read it. And what you read, it says more about you than him. And it sort of becomes his, idea because you don't know anything about the detective except there's like one thing revealed about him in the 12 issues, except he looks like Columbo. Uh, and, and, um, and that, that becomes his personality. The, the story becomes him. He, he becomes the Rorschach test. And, uh, yeah. And then he becomes sort of, yeah. So yeah, that was always, that was always the intention for it to go the way it went. Did you Um, always think this way? Or has this developed more finely? And no, 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 I'm just a genuine question because when I talk to folks who write comics for a living and you're in it, you know, there's, there's sort of ways of thinking about story and, and, you know, like you think, oh, he's the Rorschach. And I, and I, and what I think is that's brilliant. It's obvious, but you don't see it until, you know, like, like recognizing it is the brilliant part, I think. You know, was that always there? Do you just have terminology for it? Or could you talk like this when you were, you know, 18? I mean, I'm not to, to, to suck up to you so much, but a lot of my comics were f- formed um, from listening to people like you guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, listening to iFanboy, listening to... Um, I mean, I, 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 we've talked about this before, yeah. but I was obsessed with comic podcasts and the aughts. Um, less so now because I just don't want to hear them talking about me. Uh, but you, you guys, um, being same age as me and looking back on these comics and being like, let's look at them on a deeper level, um, was a huge influence. But but also like the comics I've always loved since I was a kid. I mean, I liked, I love Watchmen. I love D- D- I mean, such a fucking generic DKR. I love Squadron Supreme by Mark Grunewald, which has like this horribly depressing ending. Um, well, yeah. I love five year later Legion, which is this like, I, I mean, those are the, the comics I've always loved are the ones who are like, you think heroes are great, but actually heroes are kind of a little flawed. It probably goes back to my dad in the ponytail and taking me to the fucking, <laughs> I mean, it's not like I'm deep psychological. Well, I mean, you know, it's so easy to, when you, you know, you, you roll your eyes at Dark Knight Returns, but in a way like. Yes, it's cliched, but it's one of those ones that's for a reason. You know, it's it, it really, there is a lot there. And it, it it's one of those things that I think it's actually just so good that people enjoy it on all sorts of different levels. Because it's, it's it, the world isn't going to be, nothing is going to be made into a bestseller because it is deeply uh, thoughtful and, and you know, layered, necessarily. That's going to help, and that's going to help it stick around. But I think that that's one of those... You don't get a lot of things that are both critically uh, uh, profound and and also wildly popular. Like I feel like we used to have that all, you know, the, like movies like The Godfather. Like, oh, this is all of the things or Jaws or whatever. Yeah. And comics, you know, get harder. It's like you're either one thing or the other. But you know, those are 
examples of like I still I don't I said this about the show, but I still don't understand this about the comic. Like I don't understand why Watchmen is a perennial seller to the larger public. I don't understand it because it's not easy to read and it, it is not about it's not about the thing that you think it's about. It is, but it also is. I mean, I guess you can read it on multiple levels, but to me, I'm like, this is a text about comics. And it's strange. It's very strange. I was going to say, like, the nice thing about our industry and the thing that we were, were I'm going to try to trick publishers with for the rest of my life is that the top selling three books in our industry are, are Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, and The Killing Joke. Um, and they're always number one through three in graphic American graphic novels. I mean, sometimes they get bumped off temporarily, but they always come back. And they're super ambitious, and they're super complicated, and they're s- super good. And they're not. And we, they're, they're that's not just like, happy, happy, not happy for us. And neat, none of them are like what you would think of as a superhero story. Like they don't, they, they don't make you feel good. No, they don't. And 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 it's it's so strange to me. I, I mean, that gives me hope. I'm like, well, there must be a lot of people out there who are. Maybe there's a lot of people are buying it and then starting to read it and they, they don't finish it. But, you know, people keep buying them. It's very, well, you know, it's the same thing. I, you know, I think I thought this when you were on Batman. I thought, what are people thinking? You know, because I think in at first you were like, I'll do a superhero story. And we talked before that. And then later you you did your thing. You got your thing into it. And I thought, this is this is not what people signed up for. But, you know, it worked. There's enough people who who did dig it. And I think that's really interesting. I don't give people enough credit, I guess. But my, my top-selling trades are not Batman trades, sure. which uh, are, are Vision, Mr. Miracle, and then Superman Up in the Sky, the stupid Walmart book, is my number three, which is shocking to me. It was really um, good. And that is, but that is that book I was talking about, that Dark Knight and Watchmen aren't. In a, you know, like it's, yeah, that's a super happy book where it like, right. has a half. Although my wife, my wife always says the little girl dies in like the fifth page. So good job on my happy book. Um, so, but yeah, I mean like, I mean, Vision is, is I mean, you, you only hit that lightning in a bottle once. But Vision's a great example. Like, um, that, that's a sad book, mature, but it, it, Disney has made a, hundreds of millions of dollars off of that at this point because of WandaVision. Mm-hmm. Um, so there'll, there'll, there'll always be room in comics for that because it appeals, it, it appeals to a, a broader audience. But I, I also think it's, I mean, it's a little bit generational. I think that's kind of depressing to us old people. Um, where are, we're kind of the trail end of Gen X, you know, yes. kind of the end of, we're the end of it. And our generation was a lot about, um, like our parents were the kids of the 60s who had grown up in the 50s and kind of seen the facade of that. And I feel like they beat that into us in some ways. We're like, our generation was all about, there are no ideals, so we have to make up our own ideals, you know? And then those ideals aren't have to be tested as well. We have to constantly test our ideals. I feel like that was like the like the 90s. Like, um, and My instinct, by the way, when you said our generation is not, and what I, what I always think is, is this all there is? <laughs> yes. I, generally that's like the thing and, and i don't know if ethan hawk said that in reality bites or what it, you know but and that, that's how you can tell that when you talk about like what generation you are or whatever like i'm definitely not a millennial i'm at the very end of gen x and i'm younger than you know we're younger than most of the people who are but like i'm clearly part of that because of that instinct of looking at things 
Yes. Which is that also we're completely forgotten. No one yes. ever talks about us. It's weird. Like oh the God. latchkey kids we were. <laughs> we were raised in front of televisions. And we were raised in front of televisions watching reruns of shows that were on 20 years ago. Yes. <laughs> like, people don't understand. Like, when, when I was a kid, I watched shows from the 50s and 60s and wondered why life wasn't like this anymore. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I've seen every I Dream of Genie. Why? I don't know. That wasn't a fucking good show, but I saw every episode. It was always on 530. <laughs> like, I'm so well-versed in the Brady Bunch. Yes, the Brady Bunch. My and God. Three's company. And yes, Three's company. Oh, that, that was the one you didn't understand until you were eleven. You're like, wait, they thought he was gay. Um, I, I, what I knew was there's something about this I like, and I have no <laughs> idea what it is. That's right. And, and it was apparently it was tons of sexual tension. That's, That's what right. that was. This is it was working on multiple levels. Yep. Yeah, we watched all that stuff. Um, so, uh, yeah, I so I don't know what we're I, talking about to get to that, but, uh, oh, the comics, I think the generation above us and below us are mo- more idealistic than we are. We're more, we're, I don't know if the word is practical or cynical, but one of those two, I think we're, 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 we're ready for the punch and we have not been proven wrong. That's true. That's, that's, I mean, that's, that's our theme. That's sort of what we're coming back around to. Yeah. We are we're ready for the punch. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to ask about one more thing and then, and then, and then I am mercifully going to let you go and then I have to go to sleep. I'm holding off a cold right now and you can't even hear it, which is how much fun I'm having talking. Oh, well, you're doing great. Supergirl came from out of nowhere for me. I did not (laughs) know you were doing it. It came out when I thought this is strange. And I, I find myself, uh, I, I really look forward to it. It's such an enjoyable book. And I think that. I would not know it was you. And I, and I don't know if that's a rude thing to say to a creator, you know, like, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like one of the books that you normally do. And, and again, as I always ask the question, but like, what's the, where did that come from? Where are you, you put on a road trip, you know, in a way, and it's a very different interpretation of that character that I've ever seen, which is not a lot. She's always a side character. I don't pay any attention to, but how do you, where did, where did, where's the Supergirl book come from? Uh, I mean, the behind-the-scenes stuff is that my editor on Batman was they put me with musical chairs at DC, and he became the editor of the Superman books instead of the Batman books. Uh, and Ben Abernathy, another incredible editor, became the editor of the Batman. So I, and he was, I just his name was Jamie Rich. He since left the company. He's at mm-hmm. the top of us now. He's a very he's a very nice guy. And he was sort of you know I was just talking to him. I was you know finishing projects. I was like, what's next? What? I was kind of, I hadn't done a book in a, like, where just an editor's like, hey, come on this book for a little mm-hmm. while, do issues 14 through 15 through 20. And and he's like, well, how about Supergirl? No one's ever done anything with that. And and um, again, I had written so many middle-aged white guys, I was just ready to get away from that dynamic mm-hmm. of it. And also, again, like I, Rorschach and Strange Adventures, this is like a year and a half after, even though they're kind of coming out concurrently, it, it has to do with Bilquist being sort of a faster, art, um, a faster artist. And um, I really was at that point, I don't, not that Biden had been elected, but it looked like I, I feel like this is making this political, but I, I tell you, I hated the Trump era so much. I'm sorry. I just hated it just felt there was so much tension on us all the time and especially with the disease and everything. And it felt like I was like, oh, maybe we're hitting the 20s now. Like this is our this is going to be our roaring 20s. We're going to emerge from World War. We're going to emerge from World War One, emerge from the plague, and we're just going to hit the ground running and just fucking do the Charleston and get drunk for 10 years. As soon as you said, maybe this is the twenties. I just was like, I, I readied myself for the hit. And I was like, yeah, but, but right after, 
I didn't know about Delta. <laughs> no one fucking told me about that shit. <laughs> no one told me about Delta and, and critical race theory. Um, <sighs> anyway, about the book. About the book. So I, <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to do some optimistic books. I'm going to do some books that are about, I mean, they're going to have sadness and suffering because that's what sure. narrative Drama. is. Drama. But they're going to be more along the lines of Up in the Sky, like we just talked about, which is a book about, which is the most simple of all Superman books. He, a kid, girl gets kidnapped and he rescues her. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> uh, so I was like, I want to do that again. But with Supergirl, we're just like the theme of the book is not like all that stuff. We're talking about Rorschach, about all these deep. I was like, the theme of this book is Supergirl is awesome. And she saves the day. And she's just and, and they're like, yeah, do that. Um and I pitched, you know, I was looking around for a plot. And usually if I'm looking for plots, I steal from old movies. I've probably heard that enough. So I stole this one uh, from an old movie that had been remade into a much better movie, which is True Grit. And uh, my wife and I had watched that. And I'd read the book. It's one of my favorite books of all time. And I was like, this, I just want to say like, I picked that up. So yeah, like, oh, this is True Grit, which is not, not a problem. Not subtle as it, as it compares. And... Uh, and I was like, okay, well, this is perfect because that's about a young woman, you know, and I got, and, and this will be about, and I just need like, a, I just need a craggy old guy, I'll just Lobo or somebody like that. And it's a young woman, craggy old guy, and I'll just do True Grit in space. And, uh, and I'll adjust it along the way so it's not exactly True Grit. And I pitched that to Jamie and he was the one who had the insight of like, well, what if we make Supergirl the craggy old person, make her the John Wayne character, um... And then have another sort of – instead of her being the naive, she's the person who's been through something. And I talked to Steve Orlando about Supergirl, and he had had the observation, which is the most obvious observation. Not to insult Steve, but I had not thought of it. But when he threw it in front of me, I was like, oh. He's like, the thing about Supergirl is like she had lived on Krypton until she was 14 and then blasted off into Argo City. And then Argo City got destroyed. And then she got sick. Like, like Superboy doesn't fucking remember any of that. He's just a boy who woke up in, a, in an ideal place and kind of people told me he had sad memories. Supergirl was like witnessed the Holocaust by the time she was a kid. And, you know, me, I'm like, oh, sweet trauma. Awesome. You know. <laughs> uh, and so then I was like, oh, so, yeah. So then her is sort of the rugged, cynical veteran who kicks ass and bonds with a young girl and sort of goes through this sort of space adventure that that became super. And then, of course. I, we didn't have an artist and he said Bilquis would do it and I immediately jumped in the air and realized I had something special. I didn't realize, I didn't honestly realize how special because that book is, um, I mean, it, Bilquis drives that book oh, and, and, and Matias Lopez, the, the artist just, she's doing this. It's not, Bilquis is funny because like her art is not out of the mainstream. Like it's not like she's like the anti Jim Lee. Um, but it's got this European tinge to it where it's, I don't know, it's, yeah, it's, it's like if someone took Jim and, but raised him in France. It's like, it's funny. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, you, and, and Matias Lopez on colors, the two of them work together so well. And you are, great. you are not, uh, you're not at a loss for working with great artists. And it is, uh, it I, is, a uh, it is a trait of, of my favorite comic book writers that they, they know enough. Uh, to make sure that they're working with people who are great, and uh, it's, that's another one of the, it's just one of those things you, you're all. I'm always impressed. I'm like, oh, you you got a good person because you can write great stuff, but you need a person who can make it sing, and not just 
there are lots of great comic book artists for different things, but this has that that European space opera thing. You know, like there's like this. Yeah. It's like it looks, everything's getting hit with a little bit of wind. You know, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's just got a little something, and it's 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 like the perfect amount of silly and melodrama, but then also, uh, you know. It, gravitas i guess for lack of a better word i can't think of it but you know it's all those things mixed together and it kind of just it hums and it's not too much like the book's not too much i I don't i don't have a lot of deep like where's the symbolism like it doesn't matter like they go out there she's she's real badass you know and and uh and it's fun to watch you know that's kind (laughs) of one time a long time ago i was at a i was at some panel this is 2001 two whatever and some i think it was a dc writers panel and uh, Judd Winnick, who was, I think, I forget what it was, but somebody in the audience, because this is comics, complained that Hawkgirl was on the Justice League at the time. I was like, well, why is it going to be her? And Judd's just like, it's a girl with wings and a mace. <laughs> she hits people with her mace and her wings. W- why wouldn't you do that? And I think you've got an element of this in that, which is, you know. She's as strong as Superman, and she has more issues than him, but she's younger. And that's really interesting. I just, I don't feel like that's been touched enough. Yeah, I, I, I like it. I, I think the reason maybe it doesn't feel as much like me is because I had not used captions since Vision. So that's like six years of me not using captions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to return to that, and of course it's very much stolen from Portis's, you know, it's just like, kind of space cowboy tone but whatever so, uh and, and it's super but it was super fun and it was you know i get to use all sorts of you know words i don't usually like i was doing something today, i was like oh hither and thither i used in this thing i was like good job tom <laughs> it's not a normal word i would normally use in a script you can always tell i'm a terrible speller so when, when i spell check my you know i have autocorrect on this so my computer's learned what a bad speller is and usually just fixes everything uh, but when, like, at the end of when I'm when I'm my spell check is going crazy and fixing a lot of words, it's like, oh, good, I use new words in this. Um, nice work. So yeah, that's that, that's that's my pride. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I love Supergirl. It, it, uh, Human Target is very much a companion book to Supergirl in terms of it being a straight line episodic story with um, captions uh, that it's not that touches on dark topics, but is not meant to be dark mm-hmm. like Rorschach and strange adventures are well i'm i'm excited to see how all of the trauma from this lat last year and a half comes out in forms of superheroes that you've turned to people that fans are not going to like i think that's, <laughs> like that's the way to go <laughs> i'm writing a thing now hasn't been announced but it's the most obscure superheroes you've ever no these are more obscure than obscure. Like, like we have no idea how to sell this. We couldn't even come up with the title because none of the superheroes are famous enough that their name would work as a title. <laughs> so we were just struggling and struggling. We went through f- four names before we settled on something, which I still am not sure I love. But, uh, yeah, so you'll see that two years from now. Or whatever. How do you get along thinking, I need to sell books and I have no idea how to pick things that people want, but it sim- still seems to be working for me? That must keep you up at night. It does. It keeps at night. Uh, Here's my idea. People seem to be buying it. I don't know why. I'm just going to do this again. There was, I just bought a page of this guy. I can't remember his name, but there was an old 
not old, but when I was a kid, there was a Suicide Squad member. And his thing was, he was obsessed with this god who he thought was going to come and blow up the world. And as part of his religion, every time he killed someone, the god was pushed back 1,000 years. So in who Suicide Squad, that? that's John Alstrander. <laughs> Jesus. Right. Wow. And, <laughs> uh, and I think the god's name was like Khalid or something. I'm sure it was... Uh, not entirely politically correct for the 80s, but it was a cool concept. And so I, when I was, you know, he, he would kill someone, he, he'd, he'd, he'd choke them. He was, like, he was kind of like a ninja kind of guy. He would like cut their head off or something. And and he'd go another thousand years, Khalid, you know? Like, and I I think of that every time I like write up a stupid pitch and they like, okay, Tom, you're greenlit. I was like, all right, another two months, Khalid. I have pushed, I have pushed unemployment back. <laughs> That's brilliant. I'm 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 a big fan of everything that just happened. <laughs> All right, I'm calling it. Uh, All right, thank you, fun. Josh. Thank you. This was this I, was this I was all right. Admirer of yours. I follow you. I know it seems weird because I know we're kind of, we're friends from afar. We haven't even sure. had dinner, I think, once. But I follow I followed you on Instagram and Twitter since for 15 years now, which is so like my wife follows you on Instagram. Like, she, like I was like, oh, I'm having a thing. He's like, oh, well, ask ask how his wife is doing. Say hi for me. <laughs> I noticed that at one point. I was like, I think that's Tom's wife. I was like, okay, yeah. cool. Uh, but yeah, there's been no dinners or anything. We should we should we should do that in person and then not record it. It'll be amazing. Yes, anytime. Let me take you out to some fancy dinner. Right, you got it. Spend spend some Rorschach money I stole on you. Woo! All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. And that's another episode of Talks Blowed in the Books. I want to thank Tom for spending all that time. I think we had a good time, though. I don't think it felt like it was too long. That's what I think. Do you think he likes me? <laughs> you can, you can uh, go to ifanboard.com. You can find our other Talks Blowed's uh, and all the podcasts we've done. You can find Tom on social media at those things. I think he's on the Facebook and the Instagram and the Twitter. I bet I bet without too much effort you could find it there. I want to thank the iFanboy patrons for supporting the show and bringing back these interview shows and the media explodes and the book explodes and all those good things. And that is all. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.